0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast. Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include 2013's best movies, a Voynich manuscript update, Lighting Your Game Session, and
1: My Revenant Bookshelf.
0: And guess what project touted here on the podcast is now crowdfunding on Indiegogo? I don't have to guess. I can see here in the script that it's my pals at Phoenix. As in Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. When typing
1: it into your search engine of choice, remember that all right-thinking persons and Swedes spell it
0: F-E-N-I-X. Uh, and, of course, you don't mean to make a distinction between those two things, but you can tell that it addresses the right-thinking demographic because among its contributors is elliptonic raconteur Kenneth Haidt. Hop aboard
1: the Indiegogo campaign for a Best of Phoenix anthology in English. Stretch goals expand its ambition to multiple volumes.
0: Among its Haitian treasures, Dacian werewolves. Golden vampires. And the frost-caked western Once Upon a Time in the North. Plus, from a roster of other contributors, singing
1: spellcasters... Drowned Oz, and the card game Phoenix Fighters,
0: plus the cartoon exploits of Burger Barbarian,
1: on Indiegogo until April 3rd, 2014. The drone of the Wurlitzer, the smell of hot buttered popcorn, and the feeling of gum under our shoes tell us we've once more entered the tastefully appointed Cinema Hut.
0: Uh, Except for the gum. Except for the gum? No gum? Uh, Well, I consider gum a, a knock against you in the tasteful appointment category.
1: Well, it's tastefully appointed, but the clientele could, you know, stand a little upgrade. That's my point. It's not on the original uh, Architect's fault, really. There's plenty of blame to go around. Let's just say that. All right. But no blame attaches to the makers of our top 10 movies for 2013.
0: So I guess I'll uh, kick this off. uh, In my number 10 slot, Uh, Ken, because you're a rebel who cares not for societal norms, you listed this in your... Two thousand and twelve best of list, but uh, it was on the thin grounds that it uh, was out in twenty twelve, and I saw it then. Uh, it was not out in twenty twelve. It was it's in its festival run, but its um. theatrical release was in twenty thirteen. So I am listing as my tenth favorite film of the year. Room two thirty seven, the crazy documentary of film criticism and intellectual rabbit hole ism about four people's loony theories about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Uh, you see mostly the film is mostly made up of clips of the shining and there's some little bits of other films and occasionally like a crude computer generated graphic simulation of where the sets might've been. uh, And there's little clips of other films, but you never see the four people who have uh, variously uh, one person has kind of reasonable theories, but the other three are are, uh, pretty crazy theories. uh, And one of them is even that Kubrick is making the shining to clue you into the fact that he faked the moon landing, but it's a... no oh, spoilers. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. I, I did not mean to reveal that Stanley Kubrick faked the, the moon landing. Yeah, um, now you've shot that segment of uh, Conspiracy Corner all the heck. There we go. Anyway, it's a sort of a hypnotic, crazy uh, challenge to the documentary, challenge to film criticism. It has a wonderfully haunting score and is a sort of sui generis in terms of Uh, a film documentary that you've never seen before, and thus merits a slot on my top ten list.
1: And uh, it it, it absolutely was in uh, my top ten last year, and uh, the footage is almost all footage from either uh, The Shining or from other Kubrick films. There's very little of any sort of footage that is not uh, Kubrickian, and so that adds to the dissociation and uh, intellectualism, I guess, that is sort of the Kubrick... uh, trademark, and so to see a Kubrickian film about Kubrickian madness in Kubrickian scholars, oh, it's it's terrific. I absolutely endorse this, and I endorsed it in fact last year. That's how endorsed I endorsed it. Yes, it's, it's a maze about a man in a maze. Yes. Uh, my number 10 uh, for 2013 is Joss Whedon's uh, direction and production of Shakespeare's, well, mostly immortal, Much Ado About Nothing, and although I felt that Benedict was not Super well cast in Alexis Denisov. I thought that the rest of the cast really sort of pulled it together. Uh, Shakespeare obviously is Shakespeare. Very, very difficult to say anything bad about much ado about nothing as a play and certainly as a script. And he kept mostly to the, to the original text, which was very nice. Uh, the black and white cinematography, as black and white cinematography has a habit of doing, covered up any particular flaws in, in the framing of shots, by simply being gorgeous to look at, uh, it, I think it was shot in his house or something. So it was a beautiful California countryside, and the and and the rest of the cast was terrific, especially a familiar face in the verse as Dogberry, who almost makes you forget Michael Keaton. In the uh, older Much Ado About Nothing, not quite, but still, and comes you very can close. certainly
0: hear the lines
1: this time. Yes, <laughs> that 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 is again a big choice, and I think that's one of the things that uh, because Whedon is so in love with the dialogue, he he made sure to keep the the uh, the sound mixing mixed correctly. So I would say Much Ado About Nothing comes in at my number ten.
0: I felt that that had much to recommend it, but. The fact that the Benedict is visibly struggling throughout meant that I rated it um, much lower down from that. Because uh, if, if you don't have a Benedict, uh, you don't have a much ado about nothing as far as I'm concerned.
1: Fair enough. That is a legitimate criticism. It's just that I uh, I felt that he did not sink the piece uh, and did not hold it below the waterline.
0: My number nine film is Stoker by Park Chan-wook. This is the first American film by the director of Old Boy and Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. It's a weird, dreamlike, contemporary giallo in which uh, Mia Weskowska plays a uh, young woman obsessed with her serial killer uncle and is therefore a dream remake of Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt. It has Nicole Kidman as her... Icy, crazy mother in what I think is her best performance in many years, I think because it is dreamlike and weird and sort of culturally diffracted, it did not get the uh love that it deserved. But I would highly recommend you track down Stoker.
1: I did not actually wind up seeing Stoker because when I found out it wasn't about Bram Stoker, I took an unfair exception to it, but now that I know. Uh, that you recommend it so highly, I will return to it. I think it might even be on Netflix streaming now, so I could perhaps uh, see it before the week is out, depending on how the rest of the writing goes. My number nine is uh, the latest in Richard Linklater, Ethan Hawke, and Julie Delpy's series. uh, Before Midnight, I've seen all of the movies in this sequence as they came out, so I have the same sort of experience that Linklater does of growing up and growing out as a as in my case as a filmgoer alongside the characters and alongside the storyline i appreciate his approach the very sort of naturalistic uh present them with a with a scene and let the actors sort of carry the dialogue and move the story along i i like that as a filmmaking method and the result is always interesting to watch and sometimes uh again as you have to take with an unplanned or much unplanned movie sometimes it doesn't work but when it does work it works with a a strength and a sort of genuine humanity that you almost never see in a film because it's usually edited out. Also, Ethan Hawke is almost universally terrible in everything, and the fact that he's good in these <laughs> is uh, an example of what Richard Linklater is capable of doing and what actually Ethan Hawke is capable of doing if he just behaves himself. So, for that and for many reasons, I like Before Midnight. Also, as a talkie writer, I, I kind of like uh, movies about talkie writers. So, there you go.
0: Uh, My failure to combat on this film might be seen as foreshadowing. Uh, My number eight is Drug War, uh, the latest noir thriller from Johnny Toe. I think we talked about this earlier on the podcast as well, but this is another of his taut, surprise-filled police procedurals about the nature of chaos and our lives in the modern world. The twist here is that the police procedural action is set on mainland China and takes as its main plot point the even greater harshness through which the Chinese authorities pursue uh, the drug war and has a classic final shootout sequence to stand proudly amongst the... Uh, Similar sequences in previous Johnny Toe movies, so uh, this is one of his best films and shows that he is still, uh, when he is doing the films that he wants to do instead of the commercial movies for the Hong Kong uh, market that he needs to do to keep his production company in business, still very, very much at the top of his form.
1: Um, I did not. I've not gotten around to seeing Grug War, so my sc- my final scores could change. But it's been one thing after another uh, since we did that segment, and it only I think recently came on Netflix streaming. But I I'm sure that when I watch it, it may actually displace something on the bottom portion of my top 10, or at least my top 20. My number eight is Francis Ha, which is written and directed by Noah Baumbach, who has a pretty good record with me of producing good scripts, and then sometimes producing them really, really well and really, really truly, and sometimes producing them sort of archly and affectedly and distancedly, such that I don't care. But in Francis Ha, he has gone sort of his human, honest direction. And this is Greta Gerwig, the lovely Greta Gerwig, who is co- credited as the script, which I take to mean that there was a degree of collaboration between actor and director in how the scene would go and, and maybe even what she would say. So, all credit to Greta. Um, this is sort of a I don't want to say a, a more a kindlier Whit, Whit Stillman sort of film, but it's maybe a, a nicer Whit Stillman sort of film. It doesn't have the sort of edge of humor and cruelty that he has, although it's the same sort of story of a, of a young 20-something in New York who is slightly over her head and this is a really honest, really true movie in a lot of ways. It says a lot of interesting things about, about social class and a lot of interesting things about New York. And I think that it just, you know, again, it's not super ambitious, but it's a black and white film about a, uh, one girl, uh, Frances Halliday, uh, in New York, and her attempt to stay there and do something that she wants to do with her life as opposed to uh, sort of give up and be stuck into the undertow. And you see a couple of times where you're worried that Noah Baumbach is going to think that giving up and being sucked into the undertow is the happy ending, but in fact, it sort of, it keeps her humanity intact. And so I'm, I was very happy with Frances Ha. I I think it's a great little film, and I don't think anyone saw it, which is kind of a shame.
0: I saw it, and I liked it quite a bit, and the fact that it only comes in at number 22 on my list is no knock against it, but just a tribute to what a scarily great year for film this was. Um, I really loved its homage to the early uh, French New Wave films, particularly the films of Agnes Varda. If you liked uh, Francis Ha, you should check out uh, Varda's uh, Cleo from 5 to 7. Um, so uh, I like that quite a bit, and in another year it could have uh, made my list. Uh, that brings me to my number 7, and that is Only God Forgives by Nicholas Winding Refn, a crazed Art exploitation flick uh, set in the world of prize fighting and drug smuggling in Thailand with uh, Ryan Gosling and uh, Kristen Scott Thomas and an amazing performance as a Lady Macbeth evil mom drug lord. It totally upends your sense of what is going to happen in a vigilante revenge film. It's uh, profoundly disturbing, sometimes stunningly beautiful sometimes both at the same time and uh has an incredible uh score by cliff martinez that if you see it in a the right theater you can feel it in the uh, marrow of your bones and is a, another weird perverse masterpiece and that's uh, some people who uh were, uh, shall we say, weak, mm-hmm. uh, feared, and loathed, which is all the more reason to uh, recommend it. I, I prefer to be
1: kind and say they were idiots, but fair enough. Um, <laughs> I will I will forbear to comment on Only God Forgives, as if to foreshadow its eventual placement on my list. Uh, my number seven is The Great Gatsby, because I love Baz Luhrmann. I am very, very fond of F. Scott Fitzgerald. And again, uh, Robin, you are probably going to ding it for the casting of Nick Carraway, which was a fairly... Uh, weak Toby McGuire, but the rest of the of the of the film was w- really well cast. The musical production by Jay Z was just terrific. Uh, the obviously the visuals being Baz were just amazingly good. He captures both the sort of elevated symbolism of the novel as well as the sort of human uh, squalidity, squalidness, squalor of the uh, characters. Uh, it's just a it, it it It's as good a film of this unfilmable novel as you could make, and given that uh, my other Leo DiCaprio as class climber who suffers for his hubris is well down at number 17, where uh, Martin Scorsese deserves to have it put, I put The Great Gatsby by Baz Lerman at my number
0: 7. Um, I'm not going to ding that at all, because I've learned that I really dislike Baz Luhrmann, and so I don't go to see his films. It's
1: an inner ear condition, probably.
0: Well, yes, that's uh, one of many issues with uh, being uh, you know, repeatedly punched in the face by technical events, but I, I think his distrust of the audience is another thing that has taught me not to bother with Baz. So, I guess that brings me to my number six, which is the aforementioned Before Midnight. I love all of the films in the trilogy, but this one in particular, I think is particularly rich for the way that it shows a marriage that's gone a little rocky and uh, the struggles of adults to keep it together on the basis of a relationship that was uh, built on a youthful flirtation and rekindled later and now the uh, the rubber of living together has uh, hit the road despite the beautiful greek atmosphere so because it's so uh, beautifully written and acted and uh, such an authentic portrayal i think of uh, people in a thorny relationship i couldn't help but put it on my top 10 list
1: my number six is american hustle i have a sort of star trek movie uh, problem with david o russell about every other one of his films i really like this is apparently one of his uh, star trek twos it's not As great as you think it is when you come right out, but it doesn't have an awful lot of problems. Again, and this may be my theme for the year, the one uh, piece of casting that just didn't work for me was Jeremy Renner as uh, Mayor Polito. Because if there's anyone who looks less like a New Jersey Italian gladhander than... The uh, Basset hound face of jeremy renner i i 't know who it is, but the' You're supposed
0: to be distracted by the hair I, well the, the, the facial the, everyone else
1: 's hair is equally distracting, and the polito 's hair is the <laughs> one that 's supposed to be authentic hair because it 's the only authentic <laughs> character i i found it I, I found it didn 't work that said Renner is in there with with all four paws you know scratching away at the part he he never gives up, which I like to see, and uh the story is so very. Engaging and interesting in all the right ways for me. I'm, I'm a I'm a sucker for for con movies. I'm a sucker for uh, the sort of 1970s as historicals uh, that we're beginning to get as as di- directors get younger and younger. And so I'm I'm I very much enjoy uh, it on on those sort of superficial and genre levels. I think that uh, Christian Bale did a, a a great job. Obviously, Amy Adams did a great job, and I think Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, over and above the white dress did just a really great job and a really brave job sort of playing against her, her Katniss Everdeen, uh, moneymaker into a really genuinely crazy person. And the, the reality with which that part was written sort of, I think, opens the movie up a little bit on a human level, even though she's not on the screen very often because it's not really a story about her. It's about Christian Bale's character. But I, I found very little to dislike in American Hustle. And like I say, you know, Oscar's all around for the hair and makeup guys. So, I'm, I'm very, very fond of Yes. And American if there was Hustle. a cleavage
0: Oscar, well, it would definitely it will, win that. Like I it. say,
1: a medal yeah. of freedom to the designer of the white dress.
0: And I think it's telling that you mentioned how uh, it doesn't seem as amazing a little while after when you think back on it, because I had it pretty high up in my top ten, and then a couple of days later, knocked it down about twenty spaces.
1: About twenty spaces. But again, people, a uh, Robin 20s is a normal people's uh,
0: high teens, low tens, so... Uh, yes, indeed. Keep, um, keep in I, mind. I like it as a uh, fun, energetic entertainment, but uh, one of the reasons that I... Not, I think it fades in the memory, first of all, and it's uh, sort of about its surface pleasures, but also the degree to which it diverges from the actual ab scam story and the way in which it diverges, which is to make it more wish fulfillment. Um, just gave me the question, why bother? What is, what is the point? And, uh, since I could not, uh, discern a point above being entertaining, uh, I knocked it down a whole bunch. Take that entertainment. <laughs> yes, yeah, there we go. That brings me to my number five choice, which is inside Lewin Davis. Uh, the latest, coen brothers film set in the greenwich village folk scene of the 60s it's uh sort of a more serious dour remake of oh brother where Art thou right down to uh john goodman uh, uh playing a uh, a monster again and this time he's not the devil in oh brother where Art thou there's usually a devil in uh, coen brothers movies but here he's the devil but it's a spavined weakened devil in a uh sad, diffusely lit universe. Uh, the cat acting alone, I think, uh, warrants some sort of uh, animal Oscar. And, uh, for example, the snowstorm driving sequence is still imprinted onto my memory. And it's a, a sort of a realer, in many senses, less cartoonish, though, of course, not entirely uncartoonish because it's the Coen brothers. So I really love that a lot and uh, gave it my number five slot. I will maintain
1: a decorous, not to say enigmatic, silence on Inside Lewin Davis and say that my number five film is Gravity by Alfonso Cuaron, which I suspect is one of those things that you either think it's in the top ten or you don't really rate it that much, because it really is all about that central concept. Given, first of all, given the paucity of actual science fiction of any kind in on the screen, I, I suspect I may give it a little bit of a bump just on a genre case. Uh, Europa Report, which would be the other contender for a top 10 science fiction film comes in at my number 11, if you're interested. But I think that Gravity uh, does a great job of sort of presenting a micro-scale disaster film. And just for that genre, that other genre note alone, I think it deserves attention. Obviously, George Clooney is as, as, as happy and, and delightful as he usually is in a good film. And uh, Sandra Bullock is terrific. She's, you know, a workhorse and the fact that she's mostly in terrible movies nowadays shouldn't make us forget that when she wants to or when she needs to, she can actually do a good job. But I think the real star here is Cuaron's direction and his, uh, and, and his script. He co-wrote it with Jonas Cuaron, but it's Alfonso Cuaron's script, obviously. Um, and those are both, I think, really, really tight and really, really beautiful. And tight and beautiful being not exactly an oversupply in American cinema, I'm happy to give gravity my, uh, my number five slot.
0: Uh, I did not see that one, not out of a critical, assessment, but just a personal thing is I do not particularly love man versus environment movies for the same reason. I did not go to see the Danny Boyle cut your own arm off movie, uh, but that is not mm-hmm. a, a judgment. That is a personal preference.
1: And I would also like to mention that it's a, a, a nice uh, sneaking of religion into a Hollywood blockbuster for our own. So double points for that as well.
0: Number four, a film I rate much more highly than you do the Wolf of wall street. Mm. I love it's uh Scorsese turned up to 11 factor. Uh, the fact that it parallels uh, Goodfellas is a, a positive factor in my view, especially if you compare the endings of the two films, uh, and that sort of makes a, a an interesting bookend with Casino in the middle as it's going through the sequence of crime. Uh, some of the set pieces, uh, the uh, Ocean rescue, in particular, are uh, something of a scale and vastness that uh, you certainly don't see in Goodfellas, and I expect this film to be as compulsively watchable for me as Goodfellas. Uh, of where the the greatest sequence of the film is one in which there are no special effects whatsoever, and it's merely one in which uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, if you haven't seen the film, let's just say he gets into a car for a while, and is, <laughs> I think one of the brilliant. Uh, sequences of all time in cinema, and I do not see it as a film about a man rising above his station, but one that uses the great theme of all American literature, which is that the American dream is the toxic effluvia of a failed utopia. Uh, So I give it uh, my number four slot. I I gave it my number 17 slot, as alluded before, which
1: merely... Uh, puts it down into A minus country. It's not a uh, dire criticism or maybe B plus country. Um, I did like it better when it was called Goodfellas. And it was 45 minutes shorter. I did not appreciate uh, whatever Scorsese thought he was saying about class with the nigh constant class markers throughout the film. I mean, it was like watching a British movie, for God's sake. But I will say that a lot of the acting and a lot of the, the, the sort of the story moments and the scenes are, well, it's Scorsese working with DiCaprio, so it's going to be really, really well-crafted and really well put together. There's a lot of gems in that uh, not particularly uh, attractive tiara, so I don't say don't watch Wolf of Wall Street. I just say that uh, it's not anywhere in my top ten for that reason. My number four, by contrast, is Inside Lewin Davis, which is a terrific Coen Brothers film. Robin has covered many of its virtues, which I will echo again. Again, it's a historical film set in the very recent uh, it's it set in my lifetime, which I always enjoy seeing, and it is a movie about, um, an artist sort of on the edge of art. And I think that as an artist sort of on the edge of art in most of my day, I, I like films that like that a little more than maybe I should. Also, the music, uh, put together by T-Bone Burnett again to ca- continue the, uh, Oh Brother Who Are Out There parallel is just amazingly good. I think there's 45 minutes of folk songs played in their entirety in the film, which you don't realize as you're watching it, which A tells you how good the Cohen brothers are at directing, and B, how great the music is. So it's a it, it's almost a musical in, in a lot of ways. I thought that the the film could also be looked at as kind of a, a sly Calvinist indictment as the Cohen brothers get more and more Calvinist of the uh of, of the present, as against a imagined past perhaps, but certainly as against a lot of other things. Um Lewin Davis is not an attractive character, and much of his unattractiveness is precisely his modernity. So I think that that lends it sort of a level and a dimension that O Brother, in all of its delight, did not really have. Although I think I probably like O Brother better. But Inside Lewin Davis was certainly good enough to be my number four.
0: And number three is the year's most terrifying horror movie, 12 Years a Slave. Uh, by uh, Steve McQueen, and uh, starring Chiwetel Ejiofor, which I have a feeling by the time you are listening to this will have cleaned up at the Oscars. Its virtues are not subtle, although there is, it is certainly artfully made, and it is uh, just unremittingly confronting you with the horrors of slavery in a way that we tend to edit out of our mental histories and as such is a a stunning achievement one of those stunning achievements that unlike say the wolf of wall street i don't think i'll want to watch and rewatch. but does exactly what it sets out to do and uh nothing more than that
1: yeah i did not yet see 12 years a slave precisely for all the reasons that you cite because of the unflinching horror of it i prefer my unflinching horror to either be horror or to be on the small screen so that i can sort of control the input, I suspect the movie is strong enough that I didn't want to see it on the big screen, and brutal enough and unsubtle enough that I wouldn't necessarily need to see it on the big screen. So if I'm wrong, I apologize to um, uh, the makers of 12 Years a Slave, but I I expect it's a great movie that I will enjoy when it comes out on DVD uh, next year. My number three is Upstream Color, the movie by the makers of Primer. Robin and I discussed it in a previous canon. Robin talk about stuff i can only say that uh without spoiling it it is a fantastically intricate but fantastically dreamlike and symbolic movie it's unlike primer it's it's you know well shot he obviously has spent a lot of the in, the intervening decade working out um uh you know sort of the the basics of of making a beautiful film and then made a beautiful film about a really kind of terrifying a uh, secret conspiracy. And one of the terrifying things about it is the, the, the realism in which that, that world is grounded. And I, I enjoy the simultaneous realism and dreamlike nature of un- upstream color. I liked the, the, the fact that it was a really ambitious attempt that succeeded, which is always good for a couple of not- notches up in my personal, um, uh, pantheon. So I, I, I leave upstream color where we left it on a previous car test and at number three on my spot.
0: I liked it quite a bit, and the fact that it's not on my top ten is once again a testament to the great films of the year, particularly the great pileup of interesting films at the end of the year, of which my next film at number two is certainly one, and that's Her by Spike Jones. This is a beautiful, delicate science fiction romance about... AI and about the strange world that we will very soon be living in, and it's not just strange because of its high-waisted pants, but because <laughs> of the emotional vistas that people will confront when computer programs uh, become as uh, alluring and as complicated as real people. I think in 20 years from now, if you want to show people a movie to tell them what 2013 was like, even though, of course, it's set in the uh, near future. This is the film to look at in its sense of uh, style. And I also give it huge points uh, for uh, the performances and the characterization as the introverted character is not a child man learning to come out of his shell, but is a much more of a real, quiet, introverted person who has a past, has a, a divorce that he's getting over and is not just a cartoon wish-fulfillment uh, version of the extroverted character. So, uh, and a brilliant job of uh, writing and direction from Spike Jones. and uh, I gave it a really high slot among all the great films of this year, just because I would say that there's really nothing quite like it.
1: I will uh, get back to you on her in a spoilerific uh, two or three minutes, Robin. <clears throat> My number two is Only God Forgives, which you have already sung the rightful praises of, especially the phenomenal score. I promised myself I wouldn't say phenomenal every single film uh, like I did last year, but I gotta say that about the movie. How about organorific? Organorific. It's marrow thumpingly organorific, I would even say. And I would also like to call out the performance of Vithaya Penn's ring-arm, the uh the, the the Thai cop, the Bangkok cop, who is the dirty Harry in this film, and maybe if you go into it understanding that, you will not make the category error that um uh, and again, I'm being charitable, idiotic film critics made about the movie i for all the reasons Robin gave it, and for the fact that it is a literally perfect uh and yet completely original vigilante cop drug war movie, I put I mean it's so many great. Expressions of so many great genres, all of them turned up to 11 and blown through the back of a television that has only shown cinemax the way that the drive was. Very, very uh, beautiful. Very, very impressive, and just a overpowering story. I, I, I think that uh, only God forgives is an example of what genre film can be, and it's a really interesting argument against the notion that the genre is dead or the genre can only be sort of played out in these very comfortable uh, channels. I think that only God forgives is a, is a warning and a beacon to all other genre filmmakers. And I think that it was just terrific. I absolutely give it my number two.
0: My number one film of the year also happens to have been my number one film of Toronto international film festival 2012. And that is the documentary, the act of killing about the genocide in Indonesia that, brings back the gangsters who helped organize and execute uh, the mass murders and encourages them to play out the scenes as if they are the movie heroes they dream of being. And it is uh, all the more horrific for being darkly comic. And many of the great documentaries of the past, there are there's sort of a pivotal scene where your jaw just drops and you're just amazed that this is... The shot that they got and they recorded it and you can sort of sense the filmmaker amazed that this is happening in front of their cameras well every scene in the act Mm -hmm. of killing is like that and it's a uh, stunning achievement and like a number of the films that I've uh, listed not an easy watch uh, but uh, completely unforgettable and I think tells you a lot more about the warped psychology of uh, gangsters than a more serious take on the subject ever could.
1: Active Killing, I think, was playing at the music box when I saw Only God Forgives, and it was playing and Europa Report was playing, and I basically had one movie to see, and I picked Only God Forgives. I I caught Europa Report on Netflix uh, more recently, and I have not yet caught the Active Killing, but not because I don't believe you that it is terrific. It's just there's only so much time in the world, which is the great boon and the great bane of cinephiles, I think, everywhere. My uh, number one film is Her, Spike Jones's, I guess, uh, not his directing debut, but his directing his own script debut. And that was my big worry going in because I'd, I'd liked all of his previous films pretty much, uh, some better than others. But all of them had been really, really solid. And I was just hoping that he could do something with his own material that would not make me uh, sad for Spike Jones, but instead he really knocked it out of the park. Obviously, uh, I mean, you covered the sort of the humanity of uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character really, really well. I think that Scarlett Johansson does a remarkable job acting just as a voice and not able to use any of her other uh, considerable cinematic gifts at all, only voice and emotion, and she did a a really great job as as the OS. I think that the film was incredibly restrained and never giving the OS a visual representation, except for the sort of the icon at the beginning. And given that in a actual future, you're not only going to have an OS that sounds like Scarlett Johansson, you're gonna have one that looks like it.
0: And no one will ever leave their apartments again.
1: Yes, once the aliens will defeat us by giving us holodeck technology. That decision shows the kind of control and the kind of thought that, that Spike Jones was putting because it has very real effects on how the story looks, on how the story plays out and how you accept the story One of the great things about great science fiction to me is if you're presented with a story, but from that story, you could see half a dozen, a dozen, a hundred other stories coming out that this one, what if this one change produces a hundred other compelling stories and the way that Jones presents the film, he alludes to all of these other stories that are happening around us without taking away from the central characters and their central story. Um, there's just elements of it that are actually quietly, quietly horrific in the sense of they are sort of uh goose scary moments as you contemplate your future or the future of your, your species. And, uh, for all those reasons, I think her was, was my number one. I'm still thinking about it uh, a month after I saw it. And so I think that, uh, that her is, is a, is a real triumph for spike and a real triumph for everyone involved. My number one movie.
0: Oh, well, once again, uh, we have some, uh, pretty similar lists uh, different uh mostly in our uh, arrangement of films that are only incrementally better or worse than one another so i think uh we can declare ourselves uh, cinematically victorious and move on to the next segment
1: Once Upon a Time is a storytelling card game.
0: You know this because you are supernally attentive to the sponsors who keep our show going.
1: But did you know that there are a bunch of expansions available for Once Upon a Time?
0: Before now, there were three expansions. Seafaring Tales, Enchanting Tales, and Create Your Own Storytelling Cards expansion.
1: Seafaring Tales lets you weave tales of pirates, sailing ships stowaways and mermaids and scurvy well there is no vitamin c card in the set
0: enchanting tales adds magical princess stories brooms jealousy woodsmen godmothers
1: and create your own cards it seems pretty self-explanatory
0: at this point the fearless listener is asking hey what's this before now business
1: well heard fearless listener Now there's a brand new fourth expansion for Once Upon a Time, Nightly
0: Tales. Having rushed out to grab your copy of Nightly Tales, you'll tell a story from cards like Courtly Love and A Herald and The Reckless Aspect. And
1: Battlefields and Betrayals, although that's courtly love, not Courtney love, so obviously there's some crossover. And ending (laughs) cards like, because of her skill with a lance, women were allowed to become knights from
0: then on. Knightly indeed. Shall we recap? How about it, good sir?
1: There are three, nay, four expansions available right now for Once Upon a Time 3rd edition.
0: And Knightly Tales is brand new.
1: And it adds valorous deeds bold characters, and all manner of Arthurian elements to your once-upon-a-time game.
0: 38 new story cards and 17 new ending cards all told. For
1: more, visit atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin 2.
0: atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin 2.
1: For fearless listeners who like knights, quests, and telling stories,
0: and who have an excellent taste in card games. The creak of the stairs tells us, even before we see the image of Madame Blavatsky glowering at us from a portrait on the wall, or sense the presence of a strange ichor gathering in the corner, that we've once again entered the confines of the office of the consulting occultist. And in this case, we have a quick update on the Voynich manuscript, which a uh, couple of scholars have been uh, working away on and are, I think we can now conclude uh, that it uh, is a real manuscript and not a hoax, and we may have the possibility of it being successfully translated in the years to come. And the only sad thing will be it's starting to look like it's uh, not all that uh, mysterious in its content, although perhaps its history will still be mysterious. Ken, what do you make of these latest reports of the opening of the wedge into uncracking the Voynich Manuscript?
1: Well, um, I, I think that, uh, I have seen a lot of openings and a lot of wedges and a lot of crackings, and the Voynich manuscript is still here. So I will, I have a wait and see, not least because there have been two. Uh, contradictory wedges broken into the Voynich manuscript
0: in the last four months. I guess we should, uh, I guess we're being presumptuous in assuming that people have heard our other Voynich manuscript segment. So why don't you give us the quick recap on what it is and why it's interesting?
1: The Voynich manuscript has been baffling people. It's a it's a manuscript that is currently in the Yale Beinecke Library. It was bought by the book dealer Wilfred Voynich, from whence its name comes. It was provably owned by the Emperor Rudolf of uh, Prague. Rudolph II, but has not had any, has, is written in a language that no one can recognize, and whether it is a language or a code even remains a fraught question uh, amongst the, the 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 cryptographic and linguistic elite. It is illustrated with a bunch of odd plants and some strange star symbols and fat ladies in tubs engaging in fat lady tub activities, and so it has a lot of weirdness going on around it. It has been variously identified as the Necronomicon, as the lost masterpiece of Roger Bacon about all uh, knowledge, and as a um, a simple herbal that is, for whatever reason, decoded by a bored bohemian uh, noble, and so we don't really know what the Voynich Manuscript is. Right, and
0: an herbal in that context means a uh, book on botany.
1: Book on botany and the properties magical or medicinal of plants, not that there was any difference in the 17th century. So... Uh, recently, there have been two, as I say, breakthroughs on the Voynich manuscript, which happily contradict each other. Uh, one of them is that uh, a, a team of botanists, of, of uh, I like to imagine occult combat botanists, going into the the jungle and and uh, finding doorways to the uh, to the ayahuasca space to fight aliens, but probably just botanists uh, have identified uh, to their satisfaction uh, about. 37 of the 300 plants in the picture as 15th century or 16th century species in Mexico. And so their theory is these are Mexican plants. So this is a Nahuatl uh, herbal that has been written in a extinct form of Nahuatl, and that's why no one can read the the language. I'm open to uh, intelligent contradiction on that from Nahuatl linguists, but the botanists seem very confident of an area that is not their field. And so the this identification of about a, th- a tenth of the plants as Mexican plants has excited everybody, not least the person who previously carbon dated the manuscript to the uh, 13th or 14th century, and therefore has a lot of explaining to do if it's actually from the 16th or 17th century and from Mexico. And then the other breakthrough is by a scholar at Bedfordshire University who claims to have deciphered ten whole words uh, and says that they are an unknown Near Eastern language. He found um, the word uh, for Taurus, near a picture of the constellation Taurus, and the word cantyron alongside a picture of the herb Centauri.
0: And, and that was his cryptographic method, was finding illustrations of things that they uh, know the words for in other languages, and then trying to crack nearby words for them as uh, being cognate to uh, different Near East languages.
1: Right. The fact that he cannot necessarily extend that breakthrough to any of the rest of the book, and the fact that I suspect that the Voynich manuscript is large enough that I could probably find examples of Tangwar in it, mean that I am slightly skeptical of Professor Bax's method. And even if one or two of the captions turn out to be in recognizable language, that could merely mean that the, that the captions were written as sort of loan words. So if you look at a Japanese book... Uh, you will see some English words sort of scattered around where they don't have a, a Japanese uh, specific language equivalent. They want to use the English language equivalent.
0: But then that, that offers up the prospect of the two theories not being contradictory because they could be uh, mostly in the waddle with the occasional uh, Western loanword. word.
1: Yes, which would uh, be a very interesting case if there is some uh, Greek-educated Aztec noble writing a herbal in uh, the... The 16th century, that alone would be a pretty interesting backstory. Uh, I'm not sure it would beat John Dee using the Necronomicon to summon um, uh, tubby ladies in bathtubs, but I think it's still its still pretty good. So again, I encourage both Professor Bax and uh, our uh, heroic botanists to continue their efforts, and if they don't meet in the middle, then I encourage them all the more, because I have seen Voynich breakthroughs come and go, and this is two more of them.
0: So on a scale of credibility uh, compared to the uh, sort of quarterly announcements that somebody has finally found uh, Jack the Ripper. Where do you uh, place this as a 14th uh, breakthrough?
1: Um, I think that I'm more inclined to trust the botanists because their identification of plants was not all-consuming. They only identified a few of the plants, and they have, you know, th- their guess about Nahuatl is is clearly just a guess, regardless of what people in the um, uh, in the in the press would have you believe. So I think that they're more credible than this guy who has literally deciphered 10 words in a multiple thousand word manuscript and believes that he has uh has done the the job. Uh, I think that uh this guy is going to be one of those many many people who fixated on on one specific element and leaves the mystery at least unbroken if not if if not unmarred. I I think that the 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 botanist guys maybe are the are a little closer along. To, to pointing us in a direction, and at least it's going to be a direction that hasn't been studied to death. Whereas I think people who are Arabic language specialists have been studying the Voynich manuscript for decades and have not come across anything like this guy, uh, Dr. Bax's um, identification. So I think the the botanists over the linguists, but I don't think either of them are uh, necessarily uh, rising to the Loch Ness Monster uh, criterion.
0: And we were alerted to this uh, update by a number of different people, but uh, I think the first to earn the hat tip is... Uh, Chris Nolan. So thanks for that. And uh, it's time to move on to our next segment. Staging a no-knock raid to flash its badge and confiscate your me-go fetuses, it's Delta Green, Tales from Failed Anatomies, now on Kickstarter.
1: A book of Delta Green fiction by Dennis Detwiller, with bookend stories by
0: one Robin D. Laws. Check out some of Dennis's chilling stories on the Kickstarter page.
1: Having hit the core funding goal, the Rugo gang at ArcDream is now commissioning stories from other
0: authors. Illustrious names already funded include Adam Scott Glancy, Cody Goodfellow, Daniel Harms, Shane Ivey, and, hey, what do you know, Kenneth Height. Also
1: coming out on the stretch, a series of audio productions, with three funded so far.
0: These are from Chris Lackey and Chad Pfeiffer of the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast, so they're sure to be great.
1: Confirm that for yourself by listening to an excerpt, also at the Kickstarter page.
0: Upcoming stretch goals include new Delta Green stories by Jeff Carter, David J. Fielding, Laurel Halbani, and Jason McCall.
1: Make them scramble for more by keeping that funding coming.
0: $10 backers get the ebook edition plus an option to buy it in print at the minimum possible cost from Drive Through Fiction.
1: Pledge $15 to get all the bonus stories.
0: Fund enough bonus tales and the hard copy option for a second volume opens up.
1: Kick in $30 for a security clearance, earning you alpha playtester access to the upcoming new Delta Green RPG.
0: This standalone game, based on the BRP engine, comes from a writhing cabal of Cthulhu talent and gets its own Kickstarter later this spring. Hey, what's your story about, Robin? Uh, well, it's got a familiar presence in the mythos, uh, but you're not used to hearing a story from their point of view, shall we say. And what about
1: yours? Mine is about the hunt in the ruins of post-war Germany for a Karotechia war criminal for a specifically delta green version of Operation Paperclip.
0: Tales from Failed Anatomies is at Kickstarter until March 11th. Ebook of volume 1 in April, in print in May.
1: It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Richard Fryer asks Ken and Robin, what advice and ideas do you have for incorporating lighting in gaming? Candles, colors, special effects, etc. Robin, do you incorporate lighting in gaming other than making sure the lights are on strong enough that you can uh, read your notes and everyone else can read their dice, honestly?
0: I think you've hit the nub of the issue is that unlike music, which I think can be very effective for a standard tabletop experience, uh, on a practical level, you want it to be uh, well lit. There is actually a danger in using uh, candles uh, in a gaming space where uh, you're frequently uh, rolling dice and knocking stuff over and fumbling around. And uh, uh, I think there are safety reasons not to do that. But mostly you want to be able to see. And uh, those of us who are getting on uh, need uh, brighter illumination than uh, the, uh, the young squirts. Um, and also I feel that uh, you have to be really careful in what you do at the gaming table to move people's visual attention away from their inner visualization To the room, because you don't actually want people to be thinking much about what the room looks like. You want them to be thinking about what the room their characters are in looks like. So I would argue that for tabletop, it's much more important to describe the lighting that the characters are seeing in their environment. And you can, I try to actually use a lot of lighting descriptions in my adventure writing, which. Uh, hopefully GMs will paraphrase to some degree or to bring up there's a discussion for example in the backlot gothic section of Shadows Over Filmland about the way the lighting looks in the classic uh, universal horror movies and uh, what its thematic meanings are and that by verbally conveying what lighting is like, you can go a long way, but that actual lighting in tabletop, and you'll note I'm making a caveat each time, is something that I do not much truck with.
1: Yeah, I'm not a big fan of of altering the lighting in the room, again, for the reason that I alluded to in the opener. I've run a lot of horror in brightly lit rooms, and it doesn't seem to have suffered that much. Uh, every now and again, you'll get a situation where the lighting is you know it's sort of a dogma 99 source lighting if the source lighting is already scary I don't mind it I've I've run horror in in uh for example a a, a boat cabin on Grand Lake in Oklahoma and that worked really well uh, not least because the lighting was was iffy but I think that the annoyance of iffily lighting your your room for for a for a specific effect and the fact that you're going to be stuck with that lighting choice for some period of time it outweighs the the smoothness that you the, any sort of a bonus that you might get, and if you're a decent GM, you can bring up that atmosphere uh, s- simply by describing, as you say, the the room that the characters are in, as opposed to the room that the that the players are in. I think that plenty of people have reported good reports with candles. I just know that me and my players uh, are. <laughs> the, the the number of cokes that have been knocked over makes me reluctant to decide I'm going to also have a fire <laughs> yes. into the
0: mix. Although you could pour the coke on the fire, I guess
1: you could pour the coke on the candles, and that way you solve as many problems as you create simultaneously. I've never tried anything with uh, colored lights or with gels or with anything uh, you know technical of that nature. I think. Most recently, one of my players figured out how to project my star map up onto the big screen TV, and that was that was as close as we've gotten to special effects in decades of, of playing, so I, I don't anticipate that it's going to get that much more special effect-y. Although I could, I could maybe see an argument for a special effects cue in the same way that you have a music cue, assuming that the getting of the special effect is as transparent and as rapid as getting a music sting is. Uh, Robin, do you think that that's something that in... Our future when we're all gaming with imaginary Scarlett Johansson, that that's going to be something that uh, that, that works or, or that it's still, you know, too distracting because it's visual as opposed to auditory.
0: Um, I, I think if you if we get to the point where there is a visualized environment that you're looking at on your device, lighting will become huge. And the other caveat that I wanted to to lay in here is that for live-action stuff, uh, for a uh, Jeep Form or LARP or whatever you uh, variety of that you're playing, if you are at the point where you're up and walking around the room, where you are dressed as your characters, and the room you're interacting with is the same visual space as the space in your head, then a you know great lighting design can be uh, enormously effective. And uh, it's not something I do a lot, but it's something I want to recognize as uh, suddenly shifting the whole question. So that if you've got you know a fog machine and a floodlight. Out in the uh, the forest that you're uh, fighting the orcs with their foam boffers in, that that uh, would be enormously effective. But that's you've taken a step from. Uh, there's no longer a separation from what you, the player, are seeing and what you, the character, are seeing. Although you have to add an extra level of imagination to that. But in that case, the lighting becomes the springboard to that imaginative leap.
1: Yeah, I I think you're right that uh, a vampire larp, for example, that takes place in a in a spookily lit room is going to be much more effective than one that takes place just in a normal hotel function room like a lot of them seem to. So I think that, yeah, LARPing is a, is a different question precisely because it intentionally breaks down that player character division that Tabletop is, you know, sort of formatically forced to maintain. So, yeah, I think that with uh, with LARPing, you know, as much work as you can do on the look of the room, the better. But at Tabletop, I think that the exigencies of the GM skill are going to be the the real determinant, regardless of how many uh, colored candles you do or don't have lit.
0: Uh, well, I think that we've uh, answered that question and can move on to our next extra long segment. So, once again, we have entered the Haight Memorial Library to look at the stack of books that Ken has brought back from a recent expedition. This expedition was to Dundercon. We've talked about the Khan before, so we're not doing a travel advisory on it. But, Ken, you, in the manner of great supernatural love stories, have encountered the ghostly revenant of a dead love. And that dead love is...
1: Fields Bookstore, pound for pound. Once upon a time, the greatest occult bookstore in the English speaking language. Sadly, a victim of of the current environment for pen and paper bookstores. And I suspect a little bit of the exhaustion of the Fields people coming in to uh, San Francisco's Tenderloin to run the store every uh, year or every day. Uh, It it was only every year (laughs) to me because that was the only time I would see it. Well,
0: maybe it was just a storefront just for you, Ken. No wonder they went out of business. They were opening once a year just for you. That
1: explains it right there. Their whole business model, while being predicated on me showing up, uh, once a year, it's not a bad business model. I, I can see that they could acquire extra costs. But no, they, um, they, they, they ascended to the web where they sit on the right hand of Amazon forever. Um, they are selling, uh, wonderful occult books on the, the web. So if you are a wonderful occultist, you should definitely check out Fields. I think it's FieldsBookstore.com or something, but you can Google it up and find out the actual thing. But when I came to, uh, San Francisco this last year, I was prepared to pour out a a, a 40 of anchor steam on the the site of their old bookstore. But my uh, boon companion, Ron, remembered that often they would be at the PantheaCon, which is a big uh, pagan and New Age convention in San Jose over the same weekend as DunderCon. And they would often be there in the dealer's room. And perhaps that would be a place where the veil could be parted and I could see the angelic soul of Fields Bookstore once more. And indeed, it was so. We got there and they had... Uh, much of the much of the shop set up on its on on little um uh folding shelves, and it was uh a beautiful moment. My own book, the Nazi occult, was there in their occult nazis section, and so there was great rejoicing as a number of themes collided together. The fieldsians recognized me
0: uh rubbed their hands together in uh, anticipatory yes, and, uh, capitalist and,
1: glee and and set up and set out to selling and indeed they did they they uh they got me for uh a number of uh titles in the booth and then almost got me in the parking lot uh, <laughs> <laughs> which i don't know if i should tell that story at the end or at the beginning of this uh, well, uh, rundown
0: I, I i i think the parking lot story inevitably uh, goes at the end so uh the books that you did walk away with included the prisoner in the opal by a e w mason
1: yeah a e w mason is someone who was a, a you know, a big, uh, famous novelist in the, uh, uh, Edwardian era.
0: A BFN.
1: Pardon me? A, a BFN. A BFN, exactly. Uh, BFN O E E, in fact. And in the, he's probably most famous to people for being the writer of The Four Feathers, which gets turned into a movie about every 40 years. I think, I forget who was in the most recent one because I didn't see it because it didn't get very good. Uh, uh Wes
0: Bentley, I think is my best Bentley, no
1: there you go. And uh, (laughs) look at that. I have been proven right yet again. This is a murder mystery that he wrote about a black mass uh, or a black magic cult being involved in a murder mystery somehow. Uh, And as such, it was selected by Dennis Wheatley, the Dennis Wheatley, who I'm pretty sure we have discussed in the context of tradecraft, but not perhaps as much as we might in the context of his deliriously beautiful and wonderful uh, especially if you're in high school and why aren't you, black magic series of novels. And um, he then put together for, I guess, Sphere Books, a series of about 45 books that he edited called the Dennis Wheatley Library of the Occult. And uh, this is number 10 in that series, but it's also a Edwardian uh, murder mystery about a black magic cult. So why not buy it? Uh, it was a terrific choice, and I look forward to finding out who is the prisoner and what is the opal and how are they kept therein.
0: Fact-checking lemurs tell us that Heath Ledger is also in the 2002 Four Feathers.
1: There we go. Better and better.
0: Uh, Your next title is Spirits, Stars, and Spells by L. Sprague and Catherine DeCamp.
1: Yeah, this is... I don't know how many people grew up reading Sprague DeCamp in various formats. He is sort of a B-list science fiction author at best. He is famous to Robert E. Howard fans for having led uh, the Bowdlerization and Balkanization of Robert E. Howard's Conan novels. So he's not really in very good odor with them. He wrote a biography of H.P. Lovecraft, one of the first ones that virtually everyone objected to, uh, for reasons that they, uh, that come basically down to he didn't only say nice things. Um, I think his biography is over psychologized, uh, but th- everything else was in 1975. So I'm not sure why he suddenly gets picked on for that. But he also wrote a number of nonfiction books, among them uh, Ancient Mysteries, which was sort of his attempt to take the piss out of Easter Island and um, the Palenque Stone and things like that. And he wrote, I think, another one called Ancient Engineers, which is about sort of the Great Pyramids of Cheops and all these sorts of things. So he was sort of a, a debunker of the nonsense that was so prevalent in the 1970s, and he debunked it in precisely the way you want someone to debunk it, namely you first repeat all the nonsense so that everyone knows the crazy.
0: You've got to gather all the nonsense in a central location. Right. And
1: then you give the, but of course, this is all foolishness because blah and blah and blah. And his tone in such is more arch and condescending than I try to be. I try to be sort of a, hey, we're all drunks together type debunker of the occult, but it is undeniably effective. And this is his book about magic, or at least the history of magic in in sort of the Western world. So it's not just about famous magical practitioners, but also various uh, magical arts like astrology and alchemy and numerology. So if you sort of take it as a thicker, um, less uh, charming version of Richard Cavendish's The Black Arts, it's probably in that same mold. Um, the cover, of course, is, uh got lots of, uh, of skulls and stars and things like that. So it make sure to sell to people who don't know they're buying a debunking which is another one of the interesting tricks that people did in the 1970s with their debunking books you know again it's the decamps it's on uh magic and other areas of my professional expertise so i'm sure that it will be good i'm not sure how much i'm going to learn from it as opposed to if i'd you know bought it in 1978 or whenever it was that it came out
0: So the next title is Shakespeare's Body, and that's B-A-W-D-Y, for those uh, not looking at the insta-spelling translation, by Eric Partridge.
1: Yeah, this is the first book, actually, that was ever written about all the dirty jokes in Shakespeare. It was written in 1947 uh, by this scholar Eric Partridge, uh, and it was written back in the day when you had to put all the really dirty stuff in Latin so that the lower orders (laughs) wouldn't read it and (laughs) get themselves all head up. Um, so there's still every little bit of it is in Latin, but it is fairly uh, transparent Latin to anyone who has <laughs> either great experience with uh, dirty jokes or some experience with Latin. So this then, is
0: before the era where every stage actor playing a Shakespearean clown indicates the Elizabethan joke by making penis stroking uh, miming movements. Exactly. On stage.
1: This is probably the book from which they learned at what point to stroke their penis. Uh, being actors, of course, they probably have to learn what point not to stroke their penis. But anyway, <laughs> uh, the the meat of the book is a glossary of, um, uh, of, of uh, Shakespearean terms or words that could have double or triple meanings. Uh, there's a couple of areas where I think Partridge is maybe a little over the beam, and there's one uh, he apparently doesn't know the full explanation of the verb to come, which strikes me as an odd oversight. But well, it was um, 1947. It was 1947, and maybe back in those days you did other things. But the, uh, although that was the baby boom, so apparently whatever they were doing was working out just fine. Anyway, it's a great book. It's from Routledge, who do a fine job of repackaging uh, great scholarship. I think this is the third edition, so Partridge went through and kept correcting and updating. Uh, as he went. um, So is this
0: uh, new enough that it's footnoted to de-latinize the uh, naughty bits?
1: I don't know that I've seen any footnotes that de-latinize. I think it's still being published by a British publisher, so there's still the assumption that you're either going to uh, get it or you're not.
0: Uh, Faith in fortunes privates we. Uh, The next is Stranger (laughs) Magic, Charmed States and the Arabian Nights by Marina Warner.
1: Marina Warner wrote a really good, I don't want to say maybe sort of half-feminist, half-psychoanalytic book about, uh, called The Beast and the Blonde uh, on fairy tales and their tellers, which was about the role of of, of women and monsters in fairy tales. And then had another even better book, as far as I'm considered, a book about the male ogre called No Go the Boogeyman on scaring, lulling and making mock, which is about the overlap between humor and horror and about fairy tales and about ogres. Um, And it's really, really good. I, I really liked it. I don't know that I would say it is the one true key to folklore or to fairy tales. I don't think there is one true key to to, to to things like that, but it is a really good book and really well worth reading. So the fact that she has a book about the Arabian Nights meant that I was buying it pretty much sight unseen. Uh, I think the general thesis of this book is that the Arabian Nights are about transportation, about moving you to another world or another realm or another place And, uh, you know, sort of another place in time, both narratively and in the narrative. So things like genies and flying carpets and and stuff like that. And I think that this is going to be about uh, the Arabian Nights as both liminal literature in the sense that they exist as urbanized audiences telling themselves old school monster stories and, and fantasy stories, and also as a liminal existence, because the European editions of the Arabian Nights are the oldest ones that remain to us, and therefore... The anything that you see back in uh, the Middle East is going to be a retranslation from the French. So I think that there's a lot going on with the Arabian Nights in terms of boundaries, and I think that Stranger Magic is going to do a great job of moving us back and forth across them with Maria Warner's traditional brio. I uh, can only hope that she maintains her sort of feminist sensibilities as well, because Shahrazad aside, the feminist component of the Arabian Nights is not uh, immediately evident, and perhaps that is just me having read Burton's translation at an early age. But I think that Marina Warner, if anyone can, is going to be able to tease out some more dimensions to the Arabian Nights. And I think that's going to be a really good book, uh, not just for finding new stuff to do with genies, but also finding new things to think about the Arabian Nights. So that's going to be really good.
0: So the Arabian Nights and Toronto politics are about the same thing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Recalling an imagined rural past. Transportation. Transportation. Okay. Fair enough. Um, Yeah, Absolutely. And so the 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 Rob Ford of uh, the Arabian Nights would be what Robin the the, the rocks egg the, um, uh, the 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 genie who gets uh, trapped back inside the bottle.
0: Uh, I'm sure it's an ogre of some kind. <laughs>
1: it's an ogre. We'll have to go back and reread No Go the Boogeyman and yes. find out.
0: But whatever it is, it's eating all the flying carpets, preventing <laughs> you from moving forward with your infrastructure into the future. Um, <laughs> Next, uh, we have uh, someone who will surely feature in an upcoming segment as soon as we can figure out whether to make it a cinema hut or a consulting occultist, and that's Kenneth Anger, Demonic Visionary by Alice L. Hutchison.
1: Yeah, this is just sort of a big uh, summary of his work. Uh, He was an underground filmmaker. He was an experimental filmmaker. He wrote two books called Hollywood Babylon, in which he retailed a lot of really exciting stories about Hollywood and uh, gossip. Some of them true. Some of them, many of them true. Um, And uh, he being a a black magician, uh, a lot of the stuff in Hollywood Babylon has that sort of uh, odor to it as well. He was a fan or perhaps an obsessive with Aleister Crowley. Um, He had a lot of Crowleyan elements in his own work as well as in his own uh, interest set. Um, he, uh, made, for example, a film called Lucifer Rising, which was a, um, uh, which was a sort of a seminal piece of underground Satanist film. So to speak. Uh, Yes. He was buddies with, uh, the Rolling Stones, which always makes everything interesting. I think he was buddies with Jimmy Page, who was also a fellow Crowleyan and hung out with Anton LaVey back when Anton LaVey was cool.
0: And, and essentially invented the music video.
1: Yeah. I mean, among other things, um, he, he really is a, um, uh. Uh, I mean, I used to go see a band called Custom Car Commandos, which was named after a Kenneth Anger film. That's how uh, great he is. Um, I think that this is for for someone like me who has not seen a ton of Kenneth Anger films. This is going to be a useful overview of his work. It's also hopefully going to act as a slight corrective to some of the Hollywood Babylon stuff. But also, it's just going to you know give me a look at this guy's work, and it's a director that I haven't. Uh, I don't know as well as I perhaps ought given his and my overlapping interests, but it will probably give me a good uh, doorway into those overlapping interests uh, as well as being sumptuously illustrated. And I think this is the first edition of Alice Hutchinson's book that was not censored by one or another person because... Kenneth Anger had a lot of stuff going on, and only part of it was Satanism.
0: So, next up is proof that just because we do a segment on a topic doesn't mean that you have to stop buying books about it. The Dark Lord, H.P. Lovecraft, Kenneth Grant, and the Typhonian Tradition in Magic by Peter Lavenda.
1: Yeah, Peter Lavenda is especially interesting in this context because he is almost certainly the Simon, the pseudonymous Simon, Simon, who created or translated or edited or made up entirely out of his own butt the uh, quote-unquote Sumerian Necronomicon that Avon Books published in paperback in 1980, and so that everyone who played Call of Cthulhu with me owned a copy of, which is why we all used the weird uh, uh, broken, angly-looking Elder Sign instead of the proper pentagram with a burning eye the way that uh, August Derleth wanted us to. Um, And so Peter Lavenda has a lot to answer for in terms of (laughs) muddying the waters of Lovecraftian scholarship, and uh, Kenneth Grant likewise, as we've discussed previously. So, Peter Lavenda writing about Kenneth Grant and H.P. Lovecraft seemed too inviting to pass up, even brand new in hardback, which I do not recommend to anyone with only a moderate interest in H.P. Lovecraft, Kenneth Grant, or the Typhonian (laughs) tradition in magic, but this is really a... uh, a, a missile aimed right at my bookshelf. So I, I
0: pretty yeah, much... Yes, so when they did the marketing market. study for that, the page that's the demographic is just a picture of you.
1: Just a big picture of me. But anyway, um, it it certainly will be interesting because Lavenda is a very interesting writer. I've read a review of this book, actually, that says that it's not really well edited, which I, I will be disappointed by, if true. But I do hope that within the um, uh, excitement, there will be plenty of crumbs of more solid-seeming madness that I can then assemble, and perhaps even a one or two dollops of fact. Although I doubt that Peter Lavenda can tell me anything I don't know about Lovecraft. Well, I suppose he can tell me a lot of things I don't know. But I yeah, think if he it's untrue, he can, he's got
0: pretty free <laughs> reign, actually. <laughs>
1: See, he does, in fact, have a whole empire of things I don't know about H.P. Lovecraft. But I think he can also tell me things I don't know that are true about my mystical uncle, Kenneth Grant. And so I do hope that uh, Lavenda treats him with the excited respect that a kenneth grant figure deserves so i'm looking forward to the whole notion of peter lavenda warning me against people doing bad black magic for their own ends because if there's anything that's a better summation of his career i i hate to hear it so yeah this is going to be good on a lot of levels
0: so the final item yet another past segment on the show a uh, dark star the hidden history of german secret bases flying discs and u-boats by Henry Stevens.
1: When I was putting together the uh, not the uh, Nazi occult book for Osprey, I found that Stevens's books, while still daft, were very complete. That they would have <laughs> they were
0: completely daft.
1: They were completely daft, but they were also completist in that they had. You know, if he's writing a book about Nazi UFOs, he's not only going to list the UFOs that he likes best. He's going to list all the UFOs that are Nazi, and then he's going to try and explain some of them away, or say, well, these are obviously false sightings of this other Nazi UFO that really exists, but he's going to have a a broad uh, approach to the matter. He's not um, cherry-picking as much as a lot of your Nazi occult writers tend to do. And I I enjoyed that about him, and so when I saw that he had a new book about uh, not just the UFO threat, the Nazi UFO threat, but also their secret um, uh, U-boat bases around the world, which is a Uh, sort of a, it's kind of a redheaded stepchild of the Nazi survival thing. Everyone says, well, they got away in the U-boats, but they don't talk about the logistics of got away in the U-boats. And if you're running a a game in which your heroic characters are tracking down the Nazis, you'll need to bust into at least one and hopefully many U-boat pens. And this book provides uh, locations and maps and all manner of useful information for the U uh,
0: boat logistics of the Fourth Reich. For, for the campaign where you need to distinguish between a whole bunch of different U boat pen fights.
1: Yes, or uh, the, you need to at least have them in a row so that you can be leading up to the awesome U boat pen into Antarctica. Oh, but I you see. You have to start somewhere. So you start
0: with the U boat montage and then you have the U boat right. fight.
1: Right, yeah. It's Henry Stevens writing about all of those things, so right there it's, it's worth getting. And I think that specifically what drew me to it is the new re-emphasis on the U-boats and their bases and their hidden bases, not just in Antarctica or in Norway, but also in Greenland and Canada and all manner of places that the Nazis had imaginary and therefore really well-hidden U-boat bases.
0: So uh, this brings us to a climactic scene in which I guess someone at field sensed that you had $108 in your wallet that was not yet in their cash drawer and chased you into the parking lot
1: it's better than that as we're leaving having uh having felt (laughs) rolled over by the the, by the magical angels of uh undead fields one of the fields guys says you know calls my name and i look around and he's standing literally in the back of a truck (laughs) 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 and he has boxes of books around him that they have not brought out to uh to offer me for sale which I was simultaneously angry at and relieved by. <laughs> and he opens one of these boxes up and he says, oh, I think you'll like this. This is something for you. And he opens the book up and my my buddy Ron is like, does this happen to you a lot? And I say, no, this is my first literally back of a truck transaction for occult manuscripts. But here I am living the bookhound dream. Yes. And so he pulls out books that then for extra comedy are individually wrapped in brown paper. And takes one book My out of this br- pile bricks of hashish. little bricks of hash, of magical hash, and he tears the, the cover off, the the paper off, and he passes it down to me, and it is it is a beautiful book. <laughs> it's uh, from uh, something I believe called the Imaginary Press in, uh, and I think they're in U- the UK. And the book is called "The Moonchild of Yezod: A Grimoire of Occult Hyperchemistry," and it's by a guy named Carl Stone, who I am not immediately familiar with, although according to the book jacket he is a tibetan martial artist and a bone setter and the holder of various advanced druidical degrees and the <laughs> emissary of the Hi- of the the hyadian emissary of the court of the yellow sign and that you know right there that's the kind of credential that makes you sit up and and think that you've been wasting your life not becoming the hyadian emissary of the court of the yellow sign and
0: that his author's photo is a mask and below it says actually his face
1: actually his face he wears no mask that's what it says under the author's photo but anyway it's basically it's a it's a book about um uh lovecraftian sex magic to sort of put two
0: words together that don't usually appear in the same phrase
1: well i mean again you know if uh there is so much more negative space there than there is positive space that it's a it's creatively more fluid and interesting right so it's a it's a uh it's a grimoire it's um uh, how you use sex magic to open the gateway to the outer ones, which strikes me as entirely the opposite of what a magic, b sex magic, and c sex <laughs> but it's um well it's it's fantastic, and when you look at it, it's just a beautiful example of the bookmaker's art and if you 've got a hundred and eight dollars uh lying around, I encourage you to go to uh Field's books. Dot .com and order it from them because uh I it was a signed numbered limited edition of 418 copies and maybe they haven't sold all of their copies and as the duck says in the bar at these prices I'm not surprised but <laughs> it's um I just couldn't see myself well I could very easily see myself buying it. I couldn't see myself walking home and saying, "Hey, Sheila, guess what I bought <laughs> yeah, for 108 dollars surviving
0: that uh, conversation. <laughs> it's,
1: it's it's my it's finally the manual of Lovecraftian sex magic we've been waiting a guy for. I
0: gave it to me in a parking lot, Sheila. I really. Gave, I
1: got in a parking lot, so it was much better. And the real sort of um kick in the face is that the the book company, the imaginary book company, apparently had it up as a free PDF in August and my listenership my my, uh, my my beloved friends and contacts let me down and didn't tell me that this magical thing was available to be downloaded as a PDF so somewhere there is a PDF of it floating around that was free that i didn't get so that adds a sort of poignance to the story of how fields uh, once more died in my arms uh in uh, san jose and that is that that it was it was one of those great moments that you you know, if you were Chuck Palahniuk, a whole novel is coming out of the other end of the story. But for me, at least, it's it's a lovely uh, Ken and Robin uh, anecdote and indeed a travel advisory.
0: Yes, we could do a, a whole segment on uh, what to do with uh, stories in which that is your opening scene.
1: Yeah, right. That that maybe Anyway, that's that's my. Uh, the, but because they took that last gratuitous swipe and I didn't fall for it, I think that I sort of came, came out of fields with a draw this year because I did not actually buy The Moonchild of Yazod much as I wanted to.
0: Uh, Well, I think on that note, our listeners are going to want to uh, head out into their nearest parking lot to see what occult tums might be purveyed in vans therefrom, so we can declare uh, yet another podcast at an end. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Phoenix. Atlas Games. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Light up our lives by hitting the donate button at com. Exploit our reach by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D Laws. See you next time, when once again, we will talk about stuff.